chapter 2 and we're focusing this morning on verses 15 to 17. Genesis 2 verses 15 to 17. And our theme this morning is quite simply two trees. Two trees. Neil McGregor, who is the director of the British Museum in London, uh, he's had a long-running programme on BBC Radio 4 called A History of the World in 100 Objects. And these include paintings and documents and ancient artefacts, which perhaps uh, maybe they sum up a particular culture or they sum up uh, particular historical moments of significance. One of these 100 objects, interestingly enough, is the Derry Keegan Stone, which was discovered about 100 metres from where Hannah and I used to live. It's thought to date back to maybe 50 AD and was used by Celtic pagans as part of their worship. What if you had to sum up the history of the world in just two objects, not 100, but just two? Well, I would suggest that you would have to use two trees. There are two trees that explain the entirety of human history, our past, our present, and our future. We saw last week that one of the defining features of Eden and the garden at the centre of Eden was the hundreds of thousands of trees that God created there. Trees that were both beautiful to look at and which produced delicious fruit. Genesis 2 verse 9. Beautiful looking trees and beautiful fruit from those trees. And by the way, if you ever find yourself debating with someone who believes in atheistic evolution... Ask them why human beings care about beauty. Ask them why we take pleasure in beautiful sights or in delicious food. Why we don't just see those things as functional but enjoyable. There's no reason that evolution can give uh, for that. It doesn't make us a stronger, better species to look at a beautiful sunset. Or to spend more time than we need to preparing food that is particularly delicious. That only happens because we're made in God's image to enjoy God's creation. But out of the hundreds of thousands of beautiful trees of Eden, only two are named for us. Genesis 2 verse 9, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll think more about the tree of life another time. Most of our time this morning will be spent considering the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But why is it that two trees sum up the history of the world? Well, let's think first of all this morning about the position of the first tree. The position of the first tree. Where was it? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You remember we saw last week how this particular name of God is brought into use In Genesis 2, the Lord God, and the word Lord there in block capitals in English, it's the translation of Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal, relational name of God that first appears in Genesis 2. It means that God created human beings to have a relationship with him. And we saw last week how God breathed life into the first man. He made him unique and distinct From the rest of creation. And God's goodness to Adam. The first man continues here. God specifically places the man. In paradise. The paradise that we thought about last week. 
Remember how we saw how Eden was a huge area of land. Think Hillsborough Castle Gardens or maybe even something bigger than that. It was a vast, vast area covered in these beautiful trees. And within Eden was this particularly beautiful place, the garden, where God would meet with and have fellowship with human beings. But not only did God provide beautiful sights and beautiful food, God also gave the man purpose. God gave the man something worthwhile to do. Verse 15 says, God put the man in the garden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. So notice, friends, that work existed before sin. Work is not something to avoid or to do as little of as possible. Whether it's schoolwork or voluntary work or paid work. Work is good. God worked for six days creating the world. He continues to do the work of maintaining this world even today. And we are made in his image to do work as well. Adam was surrounded by beauty. But he wasn't just created to lie around and sunbathe all day. He was created with the purpose of husbanding the land. And causing the garden to flourish. Looking after what he had been given. And so all of that to say, friends, all of this emphasizes to us the importance and the significance of human beings. We're not just like the other creatures. All of of this detail emphasizes to us how special we are in God's creation. How we have been made in a unique way and for a special purpose as human beings. And yet, all of that being said, notice what was placed at the very center of of the garden verse 9 the tree of life was in the midst or in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as special as the man was friends god did not put the man in the middle of the garden he put the two trees in the middle of the garden the world did not revolve around the man Quite literally, the man was to revolve or move around these trees. Why are these trees in the middle of the garden? Quite simply, it symbolizes the place that God's word is supposed to have in the lives of human beings. We need to bear in mind that God was not physically present with Adam and Eve in the garden 24-7. He wasn't specially present with them all the time. Genesis 3 verse 8. uh, This is after the fall. But it says that God. And we believe that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Before his incarnation. Genesis 3 8 says that God would walk in the garden. In the cool of the day. So there were particular times of the day. Perhaps when God would come. And he would walk and talk and meet. And commune with Adam and Eve. So he didn't speak to him. Directly all day every day. So how was Adam supposed to know what God wanted from him? Well it was simple. All he had to do was look at the middle of the garden. The two trees. And he would remember God's word. Look at chapter 2 verse 16. The Lord God commanded him saying. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So friends, this tree represented the word of God. Everything else was to revolve around the word of God, including the man himself. God didn't set a big throne in the middle of the garden for Adam to sit on. 
Nor did he uh, set a, a, a nice big comfy bed in the middle of the garden for Adam to sleep in when he had done a day's work. He put the two trees in the middle of the garden. And that's because, friends, the Bible is telling us right at the beginning that there are only two ways to live our lives. We either live them with God's word at the centre of our lives, the foundation of our lives, or we try to make our lives revolve around someone or something else. Everything God did for Adam was designed to show him that obedience, keeping God's word central, would result in life and beauty and joy. The trees all around Adam were a sign of that. Here was what God could do. Here was just a little bit of what God could do. He could create such beauty and life. Adam had everything that he needed. And if he just continued in the way that he was going, he would continue to have everything that he needed. And the tree reminded him of this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Symbolically, the middle of Adam's world was not himself, but life. Not himself, but life. The very presence of God. And friends, that's what all of our lives need if they are to be lives of fruitfulness and joy. We need the presence and word of God at the center of our lives. God told Adam that if he disobeyed him about the tree, he would die. And he didn't just mean that eventually Adam would physically die, which he did. But he also meant that Adam's day-to-day life wouldn't be as beautiful. It It would no longer be in this paradise. There would be distance between Adam and God. There would be thorns between Adam and his work. There would be a loss of love and trust between Adam and his wife. All because he didn't want God's word at the center of his life. What about you today, dear friend? Is your life flourishing in the way that it should? Is your life revolving around the word of God? Or is your life revolving around yourself? Or someone or something else. The objection that some will make to this is well. Why should I live with God's word at the center of my life? What if I find that something else works better for me? Aren't I smart enough or experienced enough to decide for myself what is best in my life? Well of course there are choices that we can all make each day for ourselves. To buy one thing or another whether it's a house or to apply for one job or another, or Coke or Pepsi or Mac or PC or short hair or long hair. There are choices that we are free to make for ourselves. But when it comes to what is best for our souls, when it comes to matters of life and death, friends, we have been made for and by God. We have been designed by God. We are image bearers of God and so we should defer to our Creator And to what he commands and how he says our lives are to flourish. I might be utterly convinced that putting petrol in a diesel engine will do it no harm whatsoever. But if I consult the manufacturer's manual, I'll quickly discover that the manufacturer says that that's not what is good for the car. And in fact that will entirely ruin the car. We're concerned to follow the manufacturer's instructions when it comes to a lifeless mass of metal and plastic. Why aren't we more concerned to follow the manufacturer's instructions when it comes to human beings? Infinitely more valuable and important and unique. 
Who or what does your world, your life, your moral decision making, your eternal destiny, who or what does your life revolve around today? Money, a social media influencer, a sports team, a family, yourself? Or is your life and your decisions, do they revolve around the word of God and his commands for how we speak and how we live and how we think and how we worship? The position of this first tree. But secondly, let's think about the promises attached to the first tree. The promises attached to the first tree. God's instructions to Adam regarding this tree are very clear. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we might have thought this command very harsh or stingy if it wasn't for what God had said right before this. Verse 16 You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, every tree. Maybe that was hundreds of thousands of trees Adam had total freedom to eat from. There was just one tree from which he could not eat. We need to understand that this tree of knowledge, in all likelihood, it did not look any different from any other tree. Uh, Only its position, as we've just considered, set it apart from all the others. Contrary to what you might see in some forms of Christian artwork, uh, there would have been no kind of mystical glow about this tree it it didn't blind you with light it most likely was not an apple tree either it did produce some kind of fruit it was a tree that looked like all the rest so why couldn't Adam eat of it well on the one hand friends quite simply because God said so God's word as we've just considered was to be the center the guidebook for Adam's life And God had provided everything that Adam needed for his life. He was simply to trust in that. He was to trust that everything that he already had was enough. But there was another layer to this command as well. The tree is described as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now what does that actually mean? Uh, One of the reasons it's good to come back and really study Genesis is because sometimes... There are names and phrases we hear in scripture. We've heard them so many times in some cases. We don't actually think about what they mean. What does it actually mean? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well it certainly doesn't mean that knowing the difference between good and evil is sinful. It doesn't mean that. Because God knows the difference between good and evil. And God is not sinful. He is entirely without sin. So there's nothing wicked about knowing the difference between good and evil. The issue for Adam is how would he go about getting that knowledge? How would he experience that knowledge? Would it be by obeying God or by disobeying God? One of my fellow preachers, Reverend Stephen Steele, used this illustration. I think it's a good one. He says, imagine two 17-year-olds who both want to start driving. One of them asks his parents to insure him on the car, saves up his money, pays for lessons and passes his test and drives within the rules of the road. The other one finds the keys, the spare keys to his father's car, takes it out for a drive without any license or insurance, does 80 miles per hour in a 60 and gets caught by the police. They both wanted to experience the same thing. They both want the knowledge of driving. But they experience it 
in very different ways. Adam was free to choose how he would gain the knowledge of good and evil. Would it be by obeying God or would it be by disobeying? Adam was free to choose. God didn't make us as robots. You can't force someone to love you. God made Adam for relationship. He made him capable of choosing to love and obey and trust. And God was not holding anything back from Adam. God's promise to him was, obey me about the tree, trust me about the tree, and you will live. But equally, God promised him, disobey me about the tree, and you will die. The Bible actually describes this arrangement between God and the first man, Adam, as a covenant. A covenant is a binding agreement between at least two parties. It's when two people together agree on the terms of their relationship and promise certain things to one another. There are blessings for obedience. There are curses and punishments for disobedience. Now, we don't see the word covenant used in Genesis 2, but you do see all the parts, all the pieces of a covenant in place. And as well as that, in the book of Hosea, chapter 6 and verse 7, we read that Adam transgressed the covenant. So Adam, there was a covenant in place. Just because the word isn't used here doesn't mean it wasn't a covenant. Some theologians call it the covenant of works. That if Adam continued to do the things that God had commanded him to do, he would live. Covenants are all about a promise that if Adam obeyed, If he worked and kept the garden and enjoyed the garden as God commanded. And if he did not eat from one tree, he would live. If he disobeyed, he would die. And you see, friends, again, we're being shown here that God's word is life-giving. It is for our good. Proverbs 1 verse 7 actually says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or you could say, knowledge. In other words, true knowledge, true wisdom is gained through obedience, through reverence, through trusting that life lived in submission to God's word will be the best life. It will be life that flourishes. It will be life to the full. Our immediate reaction when we hear God say, you must not, like he said to Adam, our first reaction as sinful human beings is to think, oh, God's taking away my freedom. God's restricting me. You see, friends, God's word, in fact, is life-giving. That's where true freedom is found. It's found within the gracious and good confines of God's law. David Atkinson, a, a commentator on Genesis, he says, Imagine you decided that your goldfish needed more freedom. He has his little bowl or his fish tank, but you think he deserves more than that. And so you take him out of the bowl and give your goldfish the freedom of your whole house. Just put him on the floor and the whole house is yours. Would he enjoy that freedom? No. One way or another, it would kill him. Where the goldfish is is actually most free to thrive and flourish is in the bowl. Adam had a choice. Freedom within the boundaries of God's word. Or death beyond the bounds of God's word. And it's probably not spoiling the story for any of us for me to say that we know what happened next. Adam made the wrong decision. He disobeyed. 
And by the end of Genesis 3, Adam doesn't have the freedom of the garden anymore. He only has the limitations and struggles and temptations and ultimately death of life outside the garden. Away from the life-giving presence of God. Unless we think, well, that's too bad for Adam, but it shouldn't really affect me, should it? Yes, it does. Because you see, you were in Eden as well. You were in Eden as well. Adam, when he sinned in Eden, wasn't just representing himself. He was representing all human beings. By choosing disobedience and death for himself, he was choosing it for all of us. We read earlier from Romans 5 verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man. Death spread to all men because all sinned. And you might think, well, that's not fair. I didn't choose this. I wasn't in Eden. Adam made the choice. Why do I not get a say in it? Well, think of it this way. Whether we like them or not, our politicians are our representatives. When a president or a prime minister announces that he's going to war against another country, he speaks for his whole country. Every single person in Britain was at war with Nazi Germany in 1939, whether they wanted to be or not. Similarly, friends, the Bible says that Adam, the father of us all, was our representative in Eden. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, In Adam all die. In Adam, we were in Adam, all die. And this is why, by our very nature, friends, we don't naturally live with God's word at the center of our lives. We look for other other people, other causes, other interests, and we put them there instead. This is why pain and sorrow and hatred and death are in our world. It's because of the one man's sin. And that same sinful nature is now in all the sons and daughters of Adam. And our sinful nature causes us not to trust that what God says about money and family and sexuality and marriage and resting one day in seven, that what he says is actually for our good and will bring us blessing. It's that sinful nature that will keep millions of people from coming to God and worship either this morning or this evening, not trusting that worship of him would be better for their souls than a football match or online shopping or binge-watching Netflix. That same sinful nature is in all of our souls. And it's all because of Adam, our first representative at that first tree. If only Adam wasn't our representative. If only we could have someone else who succeeded where Adam failed. Well, that leads us to consider lastly this morning the second tree and the second Adam. The second tree and the second Adam. And boys and girls, this part will help you to answer the question on the other side of your page this morning. The second tree and the second Adam. I said at the beginning that the whole of human history can be summed up in two trees. There were two trees in the middle of the garden. We've thought about one of them already. But the second tree that sums up human history is not the tree of life in Eden. It's actually a tree that symbolized death in a place called Calvary. It's the tree upon which the Lord Jesus Christ offered up his life in our place for our sins. 
A few hours before his death, the Lord Jesus had, like Adam, been in a garden. A garden called Gethsemane. It was a garden full of olives, which, olives which would be pressed and pulverized, you might say, to get the fruit from them. Adam had been in a garden of bliss and beauty. Jesus Christ became deeply sorrowful in a garden of pressure and pain. As he came to terms with what he would experience on the second tree. The first Adam enjoyed perfect fellowship with God in the garden. As long as he lived and obeyed, God would bless him. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus, was already experiencing the displeasure of God in his garden. As he faced the frightening prospect of God's anger being directed at him for the sins of the world. And yet, friends, though he knew that it would mean death and separation from his father and the anger of God being poured out for sins that we, not he, had committed, Jesus willingly went to the second tree. Tim Keller sums it up this way. He says, God's word to Adam was, Obey me about the tree and you will live. And yet Adam disobeyed. Obey me about the tree and you will live. God's word to the second Adam was, Obey me about the tree and you will die. And yet the second Adam obeyed. The first Adam chose to disobey and in doing so chose death. The second Adam chose to obey knowing that it would lead to death. But ultimately that it would lead to everlasting life. Jesus knew that having lived a life of perfect obedience of God's word as Adam failed to do. Jesus knew that such a life offered up in our place for our sins, would lead to our life, would lead to the curse on Adam being broken. Adam was told not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He was told not to experience the difference between good and evil through disobedience. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ has experienced the difference between good and evil by obeying. Isaiah 53.11 says, By his knowledge... By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. It was through Jesus' knowledge of obeying God and choosing not to disobey that we could be made righteous in God's sight. Was it not fair that Adam was our representative in Eden? Well, what about the fact that through just one man's suffering, an innocent man's suffering, we who are guilty can be set free. Two trees define human history. Which one defines your life? Do you, like Adam, disobey God? Do you put people or places or priorities at the centre of your life instead of God and his word? Are you drifting further and further away from God, becoming less and less the person God made you to be? Are you heading for an eternity of punishment for sin? Or does the tree of Calvary define your life? Who is your representative before God? Is it the first Adam who chose to live outside the bounds of God's word and died? Or is your representative the Lord Jesus Christ who chose to live within the bounds of God's word and can give us life? Romans 5.19 For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, 
So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is what we call the covenant of grace. This is God's promise to all the sons and daughters of Adam that we can belong to someone else. Believe in my second son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be righteous in my sight, not because of your efforts, but because of him. Which tree defines your life today? Amen.